Hello and welcome to the Dank Christian Memes Podcast. Uh, my name is Brocklin. I am one of the moderators at Dank Christian Memes, as well as the digital minister. Uh, and I'm joined by my, my partner in crime here, and I sometimes call him my better half, our resident archaeologist, Jacob. How, how have you been, Jacob? Hello. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I've got instant noodles, so I'm definitely set up for tonight. <laughs> All right. That's our plan. Well, we're very thankful to have you with us. We know that you have a lot of uh, a lot of demands on your time. Uh, Edo Quinn is here. Hi, Edo Quinn. You want to introduce yourself a little bit? Hello. Uh, I am an overly online individual as well, although I've been also been uh, preoccupied with things uh, taking my time away. I've not been as online as I used to be uh, this week. But uh, yeah, um, I do a... I do various things at art slash Edo Quinn, and um, I guess I'm like a potent pontificator. That's kind of like my my main vein, just speaking out loud, thinking out loud. I'm not sure what it means, but I like the alliteration, which I think is why alliteration works so well. So a pontificator is just someone who like talks um, publicly about like whatever, like social issues and whatnot. So that that would be, you know, what the way I've been described by others and I just kind of like leaned into it more recently. Yeah, I feel like the social internet really encourages us to uh, you know, pontificate to to muse on things and 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 to share that and and see how people <laughs> uh react to it whether positive or negative. Uh we also have with us uh Cruel Angel uh, it's nice to see you. You've been sort of in and out. Are you are you doing well? We haven't heard from you all that much. Oh, hi. Uh, yeah, uh, I just had a lot of stuff going on. Um, I've since joined kind of another two bands, and we're now practicing four days a week. Um, so uh, <laughs> I'm keeping very busy. Um, so, and you retain uh, the title resident musician, so, you know, even <laughs> even more so yeah yeah well uh it's it's weird because like i had no intention to get in any more bands but uh like i was at a jam session a few weeks ago kind of got playing some like hendrix songs with a couple people and they were like oh you should come jam with us and so i did and i was like, oh wow we're thinking about starting like uh kind of 60s rock trio thing I'm like ah oh, yeah okay and uh i thought they were just like you know tell us about it you know because we musicians are terrible people we like to brag about shit so uh i mean you're sort of required to right if you want to get attention you gotta you know you gotta be willing to sort of sell yourself i mean not sell yourself you know what i mean market yourself yeah, yeah i mean we are we are the prostitutes of the airwaves. <laughs> that, that, that wasn't what I meant. That, <laughs> no, I mean, that's exactly what we are. That is precisely what we are. But, um, yeah, I I didn't realize at that point they were a duo and they were looking at me to make the trio. So, uh, yeah, I, I've been learning the most ridiculous amount of, like, 60s alt-rock songs, dude. And I, I just got to put this out there. I am bored of the fucking Beatles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a matter of too much of anything is is 
maybe not as good as you might have hoped. Um, yeah, I wasn't exactly a fan of Beatles in the first place. I've always been more uh, a Stones kind of guy. So, yeah, for me, it's just like you know, take a break and then come back to that particular time period in music, and I find it much more agreeable. Whereas some folks, that's where they live. That's always what they want to hear. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I think we could go a bit more into the seventies as well, so I can play some like Clapton kind of Cream era stuff. Yeah, I, I've been pretty busy with that. I, I'm sorry I haven't much been around, but, you know, things have been pretty chaotic. So, Well, I know yeah. you're busy, and I know you're making an effort, and we're thankful for all our, our co-hosts and come on and, and join us from the start here. Um, today's subject is banned books and forbidden knowledge, and I thought that me and Jacob would come at this from a sort of historical perspective um jacob do you want to go first with an example or should i open with with my example of a sort of a banned book that was considered uh dangerous or or to contain forbidden knowledge oh either one i have a very fun example uh right here but i trust you do as well so all right well i don't if yours is fun then i don't want to go after that so i'll set the tone with mine (laughs) and then and then you can knock it out of the park with yours sound good All right. So a lot of people don't realize this, but there was a a period of time before the Bible was, uh, the word is canonized, which before all the the books of the Bible were were put together and then everyone was like, okay, this is what Christians should in general be, be reading and be studying. Now we know that there's, you know, a few differences, uh, I think between Protestant and, and Catholic Bibles, um, and of course, transitional, uh, translationary differences. But by and large, you know, the four Gospels are the ones that that most Christians are are attached to and interested in. Um, but there were others, um, and so there was a time period where a bishop by the name of Irenaeus was writing about various heresies. Because you know, that's isn't it interesting? The Christian history often you know revolves around heresies in, in some way or another. Uh, but he was very set against Gnostics and, and other types. Um, and he was he he mentioned that there was a gospel of Judas that was particularly bad and, and should be done away with. Now, we don't know to what extent people just, you know, threw these away or I can't imagine people having public burnings because I don't think Christianity was, you know, sort of public in that the same way during this time period. Um, but. So we knew that there was a gospel of Judas only because someone had taken the time to, to say this is bad and, and we should get rid of it. So I forget what year it was in the 1970s. There was a scroll called the, the Codex of Tachos. Are, are you familiar with this one, Jacob? Do you know how to properly uh, pronounce that name? Uh, if you showed me the word and told me what language it is, maybe. No, uh, I refuse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to call it the Codex of Tacos, and I think it makes my story more fun. So that's what I'm going to call it until a more wise person says, hey, here's the language, here's what it's actually called. But it is a single copy of um, the the gospel according to Judas in a, a dialect of, I think, um, Coptic. Um and it is something that was really not cared for well. So, you know, this guy Irenaeus wanted to do everything he could to destroy this thing. 
Um, but the person who had the codex, the person who had the actual physical copy that was found in, I believe, the 1970s, was also not caring for it. So it's almost like in their inaction, they did more to hurt this gospel than Irenaeus ever could have by, you know, railing against it and writing about it. Um, and one of the big problems with it is it is incomplete, uh, but it presents a picture of Judas that is sympathetic. And I think that there's a lot of Christians out there that are like, well, isn't it kind of an inside job? Cause you know, God, this was kind of part of the grand plan and that Judas sort of played a role in that grand plan. Have have you guys ever heard Christians sort of talk about Judas in a more sympathetic way that like may, maybe he was just doing what somebody needed to do? Or is that just something I've heard tossed around my particular seminary I circles? I grew up hearing it. And I think I, I was pretty sold on it as a kid, to be honest, because you hear like, if Jesus knew everything about his uh, ultimate fate and the, uh, uh, afterwards as well, I suppose, because it's not really the ultimate fate. Um, then uh, he knew who he was picking his disciples and that Judas would be the figure. Um, well, and also, I can't remember which of the Gospels he says it in, but at least one of them, he says, Judas, do what you, what you came to do. Like that, that it's, it's, Jesus pretty much, not endorses, but, but says, you know, do the thing. Uh, so it does sort of, I, I think there's a, a, you know, a number of Christians for whom that's, that kind of makes sense. And I know that there's a lot of traditions who uh, do not see Judas particularly well. And that's, <laughs> that also makes sense. Um, I think it depends on, you know, what your theological focus is. Dante puts him at the very bottom of hell, getting chewed on by Satan forever. So he definitely has. His, right. His right. There's. Factors. Yeah, so so I think the, the sympathetic view of Judas is like the hook, and I think that it, this has become a little more popular since I did my study on this this you know little codex and, and the gospel itself. Um, I think you can now find translations of it online relatively easily without having to to dig into a seminary library or anything weird like that. Um, but the other thing is that we are presented with an entirely different cosmology and an entirely different god that the god that that we worship the god we might call yahweh or elohim or jehovah that that god is repudiated as a lesser god and we're introduced to a number of deities many of which have connections to you know egyptian deities because that's sort of the region of the world that this gospel was written in so, you know, while it might find seem like a nice gospel at first, when you get into it, you're like, oh, this is not, we're not worshiping the same God here. <laughs> we're looking at something very different. And it's actually a, a more of a, I don't want to say pantheon, I, I, it, but it is, you know, there are higher and lower deities of, of various forms. So it is sort of a, a polytheistic structure. But what's most disappointing about it is when, the ultimate deity, the whatever their version of the Most High is, speaks, it is destroyed. We have no idea <laughs> what the ending was, uh, what their God would, would have said when they spoke from, you know, this sort of cloud that descended on people at the end. Um, so again, between Irenaeus condemning it and between, uh, you know, someone else just not caring for it in storage, uh, we don't know the climactic ending 
or what this deity might might have said or what their interests or values might have been. Um, so it is ultimately a big disappointment, uh, but I think it also you know speaks to a lot like there are other gospels out there, and for various reasons they are they are not the ones that sort of sort of rose to the top. Um, is that consistent with your your sort of understanding of the sort of pre-canonical Christian period, Jacob? Yeah, because am I just I am I just making stories up here now? No, no, I think I think I think you're right. Uh, one of the things that like characterizes the early canonization process of uh, the New Testament is that there's no central authority uh, for Christianity. There's communities and there's influencers. Uh, it's sort of egalitarian in that way. It, it's sort of yeah decentralized um you still have to depend on scribes so yeah and you also have people who are large personalities uh paul is a great early example of um a, a widespread influential personality that we can read a lot about um but like a lot of the time um when there's no specific person who can decide what every community is using what ends up being uh, happening is a sort of uh, process of democratization where the sources that are used widely across these communities are going to be the ones that end up with the highest prestige because, you know, they can be cited between one community to the next. And I think that this gospel, the gospel of Judas was really a product of its particular place. Yeah. And I think that's particular, you know, cosmology and, you know, layout of, of their divinity it seemed like it was particular to, I've heard historians use the word mystery religions or secret religions. Have, have you heard that term used or, or is that? Yeah. So I think there's, there's two relevant things here. There's mystery religion and there's Gnosticism. Uh, mystery religion right. is a term uh, we often use the term mystery cult uh cult not in the sense of like rajanish Brahm and jonestown but in the sense of um like a venerative uh practice around a specific deity um and these are cults that would have uh, some sort of initiation ritual and um uh insider knowledge and practice for a specific group of people within the ancient Mediterranean world. And so you have those for... I compare them to our modern day conspiracies in a lot of ways, that that by holding the secret knowledge, by my knowing that, you know, the president is a lizard person or or whatever it is, (laughs) that that you are in some way supposed to be uh, transcendent. So, you know, I got the impression that whatever the deity was trying to say at the end was sort of the the secret knowledge that would have been the focus of that community. Often. Yeah. I I think it's hard to sum them up because it's kind of an artificial category um, that we've like, we're impressing on this, this world of uh, decentralized religion. Right. Um, And the same goes for Gnosticism, which describes a Christian movement that I believe the gospel of Judas is representative of that, uh, is similar in a lot of ways. Gnosticism's basic premise from uh, Gnosis in Greece or Greek, which is uh, knowledge, uh, is that salvation is attained through achieving uh, secret knowledge, and that uh, Jesus was essentially the ultimate Gnostic, the ultimate uh, figure who could access this bridge between um, 
uh, the transcendent and our plane. Um, and this division in Gnosticism is generally, uh, it's once again, it's an artificial category put on it by uh, largely detractors of the ideology. Well, but there are, there are fans. There are fans of Gnosticism. Yeah. Um, or, or at least, you know, what they've seen or what they like. I imagine they, you know, sort of a la carte rather than saying, oh, yes, all these Gnostic books are are for me 100%. But I've also heard, you know, ministers rail against it as sort of a denial of the physical world that, you know, God made humans and human bodies in the world and declared that they were good, whereas Gnosticism usually says only the spirit matters and the physical world is sort of a a distraction at best and a, a delusion at worst or, or something along those lines, you know, varying between community, of course. Yeah. The generalized version that we get generally when we discuss Gnosticism, once again, it's not a centralized, just like uh, more mainstream versions of Christianity. It is not centralized in this early period by any authority. So it does have variation, but the generalized version is that there is like a higher deity and a lower deity and the lower deity is called the Demiurge, uh, who created um, the physical world, the imperfect world. Um, and this is actually a false deity. And then there's the higher almighty who created um, the, the spiritual reality that is pure and uh, worth reaching out to. And so that's like the fundamental argument of uh, Gnosticism, really. Yeah, well, and I think that, um, well, I, I don't want to absorb too much of the conversation here, but I think since we've talked a little bit how the term Dead Sea Scroll is sort of a, a made-up term, especially for uh, good media attention around certain archaeological finds, um, but would you mind saying a little bit on the Nagamari Library? Because I imagine what you would say would be more eloquent than, than what I would come up with. Yeah, so the Nag Hammadi Library is uh, sort of a collection of texts uh, that was found in Egypt in the middle of the last century. Um, I think it's. I think it's. 13. Is it one particular site or, or a collection yeah. of, of Nag sites? Is the name of the site it's found it. Um, and they are basically a set of codices that comprise. Um, one of the most complete uh, collections of Gnostic texts we have because, um, you know, Christian communities eventually would come to look down on these texts more and more. Uh, and so what the Nag Hammadi Library is, is just the term for a specific set of these that were found together that represent the views of a specific community. Um and so we can look at those and uh, we can argue how much they represent like a mainstream for Gnosticism or if they represent the specific community. But regardless, they're a look into a Gnostic um, understanding of the world that is fairly useful archaeologically and historically. Yeah, well, and, and I know when I was, was young, I... Um, picked myself up a, a collection of non-canonical gospels 
Um, and I thought they were really interesting and really neat. Uh, but eventually I started feeling bad because it was like, you know, I should be reading the actual Bible though. Like <laughs> that, is, that, that, you know, this is an interesting uh, historical thing to, to look at really interesting cultural perspective. Um, but at the end of the day, I was like, okay, I should, I should get back to work. It's, it's kind of a distraction. Um, Did you ever read the infancy gospel of Thomas while you were at it? Ah, uh, I don't know right if that was in the collection. Line. Uh, is is that yours? Because I don't want to. I don't want to give away the good parts. If that's no, where but it's uh, is that the one where Jesus, as a youth, um, pushes a boy off a roof? Yes, um, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, Jesus! What did you do?" And he's like, "Oh no, he's he's fine. He's fine." And and like he he kind of does like a a quick resurrection to sort of get out of trouble. Yeah, the whole narrative is basically an arc for childhood jesus learning to use his abilities right um is that also the one where it's a it's a fascinating text that you can you can imagine exactly why it became considered heretical uh but if you want a wild ride of a non-canonical gospel i recommend it's not actually that long is this also the one let, let me know if i'm confusing them um, where I think Joseph or someone like raises a hand to Jesus for like misbehaving and Jesus like just rebukes the adult and like sends them away in, in shame or, or, or something like that. Or am I thinking of a different one? I don't remember for sure. Uh, there is a teacher scene where they like send him to a teacher to learn the Greek alphabet. And oh, okay. Jesus just like snaps and like explains it to the teacher. <laughs> Um, there's also a scene where he like, he cripples a kid, uh, because his father accuses him of like performing miracles on the Sabbath. Uh, but the thing is, so all of his, like, all of his, all the people who get hurt by the end of the gospel, he ends up like making up for them. So he like fixes all their problems. Um, and that's kind of the arc is it's like. How did Jesus become the perfect person he was? Uh, well, and we have a little piece of him potentially misbehaving. I don't know. So we have the story of um, Jesus and Mary and Joseph all traveling together from, I think it was Jerusalem. And they had a, assumed that Jesus was part of the caravan they were traveling in and then couldn't find him and realized they left him back in the city. And when they found him, Jesus said, well, of course I'd be in my father's house. Where else would I be? Um, and it's hard not to see that as like really, really snarky. Although I wouldn't leave Jerusalem without knowing for sure if my kid was with me. So, you know, maybe, maybe there's, <laughs> maybe there's some shared fault going on in that story too. It's interesting. I think, cause it, it really gives the idea of like, it's easy to read. Um, we talk about like, christological discussions and like the discussion of the nature of christ that existed in early church councils in this world before these church councils these questions of like who jesus was are even more debated right and so in many christology ways, is pretty heavy like stuff non-canonical gospels are the ultimate ways we can actually see the sides of the debate the versions of jesus that people imagined uh, in these early communities and I think the infancy gospel of Thomas, like, uh, 
it strikes particularly hard because it is so different from the one we're used to. Um, and that's one reason why it's so interesting uh, and why it's one of my favorites, even though it's, it's a really uncomfortable book kind of in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I have to say though, that the Trinity gets a lot of, of flack for being, you know, a mystery and an explainable mystery or, or whatever. Um, but compared to some of the descriptions of the cosmology and of divinity in some of these Gnostic tests, it, it makes the Trinity look comparatively tame. Um, I, <laughs> maybe I'm the only one who sees it that way, but. I mean, I can understand that. Uh, to be honest, uh, I've, I've been kind of like in and out because I feel like I'm not entirely fit to be conversing in this discussion. But I can totally see what you're saying about like Gnosticism or, you know, uh, non-canon works feeling more strange or more out there than, you know, even the more out there versions of the canon, um, you know, Christianity. I mean, the Trinity, frankly, is something that I think is just not well understood by most people. And oftentimes the people who understand it the worst tend to sometimes, I won't say oftentimes, sometimes uh, speak about it in the most definitive and incorrect ways. But that's, you know, that's whole Dunning-Kruger yeah. of it all to some extent as well. I remember someone talking about like how, oh, you know, like Christianity is inherently polytheistic because the Trinity, it's like, that's not really how that works, but okay. <laughs> Well, and to a lot of people outside Christianity, to to folks of of the Jewish and, and Muslim faiths, that they're like, oh, that looks a lot like polytheism to us, but that's none of our business, <laughs> sort of. That argument is actually made in the Quran itself. There is a uh, there is a passage that attempts to um, argue against the Trinity, um, which I do not remember offhand, but uh, it's. An interesting read if you want to get into this discussion from that angle as well uh, in another scripture. Yeah, well, uh, and I, you know, I, I've had a, um, you know, a, a Muslim student who I'd love to have on the podcast, but there, our schedules have just been all wrong. So uh, I think sometime in the coming months, I'm going to have to uh, prepare and I'm going to have to stay up late for their benefit so we can actually get um a Muslim perspective on, on, on Jesus. Cause I think, I think you're right. I think that's um, very, very similar, even if it's not necessarily something that, you know, you consider to be part of, of, you know, a Christian canon. Um, but I, I want to put, so I have, I have discussion questions. I want to come back to my boy Irenaeus and whether or not, you know, banning material was good, or if he just made us more interested in this, this document when we finally found it. Um, but I know Jacob has more more examples, so I don't want to I don't want to undercut that. So you you want me to you want me to throw my example out here? Yeah, throw some examples out, and then you know we'll we'll come back to sort of this meta okay. discussion of to, to what extent is banning books useful, uh, in what circumstances might it be called for that that sort of thing. So this is a different question than canonization, but rather uh, from a much later period in the history of Christianity. I was going to bring up the Index Librorum Prohibitorum, which was a list of banned books in the Catholic Church uh, that was used from uh, the 1500s and actually was only abolished in 1966. Um, wow. 
basically uh, the Catholic Church kept a an index of books that they considered to be uh, heretical or otherwise um, like dangerous to the faith. Uh, and because this takes place in the early modern period, what we're talking about is um, obviously a lot of uh, like Protestant works, uh, but more importantly um, for sort of, uh, or I think more importantly for church history, it interestingly included a lot of scientific and philosophical texts that uh, were considered problematic. Uh, one of the major issues, if you've ever read about the um, Galileo affair, uh, where you know Galileo Galilei was uh, supported by the Vatican, but he sort of got on the wrong side of the Pope uh, after a while. And yes, I've heard some debate over whether or not it was his science that got him in trouble, or if he had just been straight up rude to the Pope, and that was, was the real issue. Yeah, I don't think it was his the the it was the inquisition that didn't like the science it was his uh attitude that like sealed his fate i think um about the whole situation uh but anyway the the in the wake of the galileo affair there was a problem around um heliocentrism and it, it is a contentious topic the idea that the sun uh, was orbited by the earth rather than the other way around um and this idea, because um, it challenged uh, the sort of cosmology in Genesis from a very literal standpoint, where you have like the light that governs the day, it, it implies you know the sun moves around the earth. There were still a lot, um, you know, are still a lot of connections between God and and the sun made, uh, and that's you know, there's a lot of different cultural reasons for that. Yeah, but also like. Uh, even frankly, to, to bring up flat earthers today, they often point to biblical cosmology. And that's, you know, it's understandable oh why we're there. It's because from standing on the ground, the sun does seem to move around you. Um, like, it makes sense to describe it that way. Uh, we still describe sunrises and sunsets because um, that, that makes sense from our point of reference. Uh, but a lot of these uh, astronomical works ended up on, on the index, uh, including uh, Kepler's um, Epitome Astronomiae Copernicane. Because uh, it wasn't a book unless it was written in Latin at the time. Yeah, which uh, basically worked off of the Copernican model of, of the solar system. Uh, but also you have um, philosophers, especially of uh, like early humanist and liberal movements, um, as well as um, some of the uh, modern moral philosophers. Uh, for example, Immanuel Kant's uh, critique of pure reason was on there for a long time. Oh, uh, works of Voltaire. Um, philosophers who were critical of the church and traditional uh, morality and um uh, knowledge making systems that the church had cited. Uh, and so a lot of these, these texts were on there. Um, the thing about its enforceability though, was it was only really enforced legally within the papal States itself. 
Um, other versions of it would be uh, used by like different Catholic powers, uh, like Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. But um, the political ability of the church to like ban these texts across Europe uh, was limited, especially as church power sort of waned over the course of the modern period um, in different places. Like obviously. <laughs> Uh, these scientific discussions about heliocentrism happened uh, and even Catholic publications occurred with them. There are publications of um, Newton's Principia Mathematica, uh, one of the principal works that helped establish modern physics um, that include discussions by church figures who essentially carried out the publication where, you know, they talk about heliocentrism and whatnot because they have to. Uh, you, you simply can't go into some of these topics without dealing with things on the list. And so the ability of the list to uh, actually ban the circulation of these books across Europe was pretty limited. So uh, it's more like they were advising against it. And I got the impression that that was Irenaeus's, Bishop Irenaeus's situation as well, that he was trying to advise against these writings and these communities, but he didn't have like, you know, literacy wasn't as widespread. So he was talking to, you know, pretty specific group of people. Um, and it's not like these books were found far and wide. So I don't think that there was like any book burnings or, or anything. Um, I don't know if there's much um, evidence for. Well, would there be evidence if there were burning of Christian texts? Um, yeah, we hear about. I mean, the thing about book burnings is they're kind of a newer concept. They do happen in the medieval period. Uh, there's a king of France, I forget which one, who had um, all the like Talmuds in France gathered up and burned in one of the largest uh, medieval. Uh, Ooh, that sounds uh, like some serious anti-Semitism right there. Um, so, like, they happened, but I, I don't know if, or I do know of them in the ancient world. They're just on the wrong side of the world. The, the Qin Dynasty supposedly uh, cracked down on uh, like Confucian and Taoist texts uh, in China. Um, I don't know about early Christian texts, but the thing about Christians, like, in the time of Irenaeus. Um, is that basically he didn't have actual political power. Uh, he, he was, you know, he was a bishop with some influence and a lot of writing. Um, and but it was that, mostly scholars and elites that he might have influenced, not yeah. communities worshipping necessarily. Them. He didn't drive their hand. They decided whether or not to listen. Um, in the, with the index Librorum Prohibitarum, uh, in the more modern period, the church was an incredibly powerful political force, but modern statehood was already becoming, uh, a competing force that limited it. Right. And so, um, maybe you'll lose your nice cozy church, uh, job for, being a bit too into heliocentrism, but you're not going to stop the people in the universities who, you know, are beyond the reach of the church. Um, 
uh, frankly, the the Enlightenment period uh, often had had figures, notable figures, critical of the church. That was one of the major movements at the time, one of the major uh, rises in humanism and its branches like liberalism. Uh, but the, um, you know, very, very seldom was it the church itself that was the thing that cracked down on these uh, people because you know, Largely because the they didn't have centuries. the ability. Yeah. By the last few centuries, uh, kings were already trying to reduce the power of the church. Um, you think of Louis XIV and the like. Um, yeah. And so uh, by the time the list was abolished, um, I would imagine that for a long time it had been functionally an advisory list uh the inquisition wasn't carrying carrying out uh seizure of books and burning them in the 1960s well i mean and i have to imagine that's probably for the best so like going back to my boy Irenaeus over there and and i think you're right like he was an influencer within a particular community and that community, as is often the case even now, is somewhat separated from actual worshipping people or communities. Um, but, like, I, I kind of identify with him because the, the gospel of Judas is very, very different. Not so much because of Judas, but because of everything else. And that, you know, if you're trying... I don't know if the Trinity was was known to be a thing at this particular point in history, um, but you know, sort of trying to codify what Christianity is and what Christianity isn't. I can sort of identify with him saying, "Yo, this one is just a little out there and not <laughs> not not a good idea." Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, your example is pretty perfect. That like um, getting worked up about scientific things. You know, it seems like historically that this has mostly been academics talking to other academics, scribes to scribes, uh, scholars to scholars. Um, but now, because, you know, literacy is so widespread, the idea of banning a book or burning a book, I feel like, is is a bit different. How, Jacob, how unique are we in our time period for literacy? Were, were there any other highly literate societies that, you know, we're forgetting about? Uh, when the, when we talk about highly literally, highly literate societies in the pre-modern world, like the ancient and medieval world, uh, we're talking societies that were still behind societies we consider low literacy today, frankly. Um, like, uh, the fact is that before widespread printing, access to texts of any particular link uh, was just not great unless you were um, fairly privileged. Uh, even even in societies that we consider high literacy, for example, the medieval caliphate, uh, the Abbasid caliphate had high literacy, partly because of the um, like stress that uh, Islam has historically put on studiousness and the ability to read things like the Quran. Um, 
even then, uh, if you like walked up to someone on the street, I doubt they would have the reading capacity that most children have in most countries today, simply because they just don't have the sheer access of works to practice with. Um, and that's sort of what we should expect. Uh, most of the time, in fact, I, I think maybe we could go with this analogy as a better analogy for uh, how this process of canonization and uh, text promotion or suppression worked is uh, rather than thinking of it as keeping things in or out of the hands of the people, think of it how today we have wars between textbooks uh, and writers of textbooks for school children, right? You have someone whose job it is to convey a certain set of information and they have a set of books from which to do that from that uh, determine what the information is. Um, if there is an idea or set of ideas that run through a set of textbooks, uh, we might be critical of education that relies or uses on those in a, in a particular way. And it's the same thing with these ancient texts. Um, generally, when we argue about curricula, we aren't saying that uh, ideas should be banned from public discourse altogether. We're saying that these ones should be the ones that are standardized for teaching use and others should be shied away from because they are problematic in some way or another. Uh, whatever we consider that to mean. That's the same thing that's going on here with canonization. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, I, you, thank you for, you know, taking a moment to explain the canon. I sort of bumped up against it without really <laughs> describing what it was or its significance. Um, so we've covered a few examples. I want to try to bring Cruel Angel and Ed O'Quinn into the conversation a little bit. Um, you know, we live in somewhat of a unique time because, you know, literacy is pretty widespread and we generally consider that to be a good thing. Um, but with literacy comes, you know, access to all sorts of information and knowledge. So, like, you know, we're talking about religion, we're talking about, you know, fundamentals of science. Um, I, I don't know if this is possible or not, but I would be alarmed if the information for making say nuclear weapons or, or biological weapons was just readily available on the internet. That, that would be alarming to me. Um, but you know, maybe not shocking. Um, so, you know, is there a time and space for, uh, you know, sort of forbidding knowledge or access to certain things or, or is it just an impractical exercise that doesn't really work? Um, Edoquin or a cool angel, do either one you want to weigh in? Uh, sure. I mean, I would say, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a, uh, internet streamer by the name of destiny or goes by the name of destiny, but he was asked about this sort of in this, in the, in the vein of like cancellation talking about, you know, controversial figures getting canceled on various platforms. And I think he made the, the, the point that cancellation works pretty well at, um, taking certain public figures off the board so to speak it doesn't work as well at actually taking certain ideas off the board so yeah that's a good distinction yeah so like you could theoretically ban a book or um prohibit certain um 
speakers or certain words, but it would be difficult to prohibit entire strains of thought or like, like sort of, uh, herds the internet, let's say, especially the internet, but the, 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 the world more broadly of entire, like strains of thought writ large. Yeah. Well, and I think back to world war two and, and the Nazis and obviously the Nazi genocide against Jewish people and others and their desire to, to burn, uh, Jewish texts, which is anything from Jewish religious texts to, you know, the writings of Albert Einstein or, or others. Um, and I feel like at that time, maybe in a, in an area that would be effective. Right. But like now, because the internet is so widespread, I feel like, you know, if you're doing a book burning, that's, uh, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> you know, we live, we can mass produce books. Many of them are digitally available. I feel like maybe in that, you know, city or in that town, they would be without those ideas, at least for a time. Whereas, you know, there's always way to, you know, to get information. I, 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 I've come to believe that I don't think you can actually remove ideas much, much like you said, um, that maybe there was a time, but I don't think it works anymore with the internet. I would like to suggest a counterexample because I've got the, I've got the profile pic, So I have to uh, talk about indigenous American civilizations. Uh, Following the Spanish conquest of the Americas, um, in Mesoamerica and the Andes, there was a concerted effort to attempt to stamp out the uh, local religion. But the Spanish colonizers uh, tended to barely understood, understand the, um, the systems of knowledge keeping that they were dealing with. And so they tended to indiscriminately uh, burn codices in Mesoamerica and the Kipu, the knotted string uh, information keeping systems of the Andes um, in, in South America. And so um, we actually have for, you can count the number of extant uh, Aztec codices on your fingers uh, that exist. We, we have a lot of information based on the classical uh, Nahuatl uh, writing system that arose in the Spanish period written in the Latin script. Um, but as for original texts, uh, we have next to nothing. And this is because of a very successful destruction campaign carried out by figures like uh, Diego de Landa is one of the major organizers of it. Um, and so this is a genuine problem when we're trying to reconstruct these cultures uh, and their worldviews, because we tend to only have, uh, for the most part, perspectives that are filtered through people who had, who were either um, indigenous people who were partly Hispanicized and generally uh, Christianized um, writing about the traditions of people who weren't, right? Or you have um, the Spaniards themselves writing uh, about these cultures, and we have to take, you know, the sources we now have are through their lens. Um, And so in this case, I think that there is, there are historical situations where uh, destruction has put, has 
possibly significantly destroyed ideas to the point where the ideas that we do have in the leftovers are very hard to uh, sort through and see how close they were to the ideas that actually existed beforehand. Well, and yeah, I've I've taken a lot for granted in my statements, forgetting that you know before we had a um, Rosetta Stone, we didn't we didn't know a lot about some ancient languages, and like you said, the the uh, the Americans that were were here before you know Europe made its way over were were obviously uh, not well represented to say the least. Um, I should have known better, especially because did did any of you guys see uh, the latest episode of um, John Oliver's show last week tonight, where he talked about museums and and a lot of sort of stuff that you touched on here, Jacob? They did see that actually, yeah, or rather the YouTube upload part. I didn't watch the full right. episode. Uh, me as well. I'm not, you know, I'm not a premium subscriber or whatever. Um, but I think one thing that stood out to me most is is the the metal plates that were like an epic story or, or an important history or something very important. And Europeans came in and grabbed them and lost the original order. And now they're completely isolated from the community that, you know, that that's their history and their, and their heritage. So, you know, be in this case, they were very successful of, of just removing it. Um, And now you have to come to a museum in in Europe somewhere to to actually see it, which is not where those people live or really have access to overall. Um, Well, I would say what you said, Jacob, is not necessarily in contrast. It's not necessarily counter to what Brocklin said initially. Uh, He was talking about, you know, going off of what I said, talking about how it's difficult to destroy ideas in the post-internet era pre-internet era obviously like there's all kinds of forbidden knowledge lost knowledge i mean uh first nations people is a, is a more recent example but just go back to the greek dark ages go back to the european dark ages there's a lot of lost knowledge for sure that we're not i don't think anything that was said prior to when you jumped in was like running counter to that it's just talking about how in the modern era like I'm very much not in favor of banning things. If I need to say that, it should it should be implied uh, from very, everything. You don't know me, but like it should be implied from like everything I've said so far, which is not much to be fair. I've been quiet, um, and you know everything that you could find out about me on the internet. I have much more of a like pluralistic and knowledge. I would say you know philosophical you know, lover of knowledge mindset. But like, do you have a line? Is- like I mentioned my line about like weapons creation and things like that uh i have a bunch of like little catchphrases i've been told but it's nothing uh it's more like rick and morty level stuff than like pithy and truly like insightful level stuff if that makes sense but my point is being uh yes knowledge is lost and has been lost historically but in the modern era which i think was what brocklin's prompt was i took it anyway was talking about it's just much harder so i don't think for example the the full like how to make a nuclear device a nuclear weapon specifically uh kind of information is out there i think you can say that much but the basic ideas about like how these machines and weapons work is already like studied and and scholastic to some extent even it's just like the specifics of actually like how do you make a nuclear bomb is still a guarded secret that 
you know, certain nations have and certain nations claim to have, but maybe not. And certain nations clearly don't have and admit they don't have. And all the evidence points to them not having it. So the, that's this an example of something that, yes, that is somewhat forbidden knowledge for sure. But for example, the red pill, whatever version of that you want to talk about, that's not forbidden knowledge. And it's forbidden knowledge in the sense that it's like considered unpopular or, you know, whatever, you know, hateful in certain circles, but it's not something that we can stamp out. We can try to suppress it, but it, we can't actually ban it because, again, you can ban the individual, but the idea will persist in the modern era anyway. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a lot of that, a lot of, um, in particular, sort of hateful ideologies that people thought were a thing of the past. And like, no, no, they're still still here in some form or another. And, and you know, sort of true to what you said, that, that that idea persisted no matter how unpopular it may have seemed uh it didn't quite go away and, and many of the ideas we don't like wherever we are politically are not going anywhere so <laughs> it's, uh it's 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 challenging but you know uh that's that's a sort of pluralistic you know perspective that we have here on the internet at least um cruel angel what do you think about this from a music perspective i feel like there's plenty of christian moms that have been like well i don't want my kids listening to rap but i also don't want them listening to that evil metal music um is that stuff just good for musicians that's does that just make their music more attractive to rebellious children absolutely i mean without a doubt this is kind of how we had the whole satanic panic back in the 80s it was a lot of usually very urban Americans that were very sheltered, a lot of them Christian, you know, being told they have to be this and they have to do that. They have to look, act, and perform a certain way. And, you know, teenagers will be teenagers where I mean, they're rebellious and loud and want to do fun things. And usually the most tempting thing to them is what's forbidden, you know? You tell any teenager you can't do that. First thing they're going to think is that is exactly what I want to do. Exactly. I mean, this is why we had the big, big scare along with things like Dungeons and Dragons that you know lent into the whole mythology and demonistic kind of you know the the travel into that kind of realm, which led into the heavier music. They kind of went along with the fantasy. Uh, so it very much plays a part that, I mean, if you make something forbidden fruit, it's going to taste all the more better. Why wouldn't you chase it? You know, it's uh, also, I don't know if you've seen back in the 80s when there was this big satanic panic, there was a big call to get a lot of censorship into modern rock music for the time. In fact, it went to court. It was. Uh, it was kind of started by the Gore administration. And uh, if you ever get to watch the videos on kind of all of that in court. There was stuff against video games at that point too, right? Like was, I remember Mortal was. Kombat was held up as an example of, of yeah. vile video games that needed to be curtailed in some way. And yeah, some big name politicians like were on that. Later. Yeah, that was about 10 years later when we started to get a bit more realistic as far as you know, things like graphics and gore and such. But it was very much prevalent in the 80s. But if you do get a chance to watch those videos, 
there is some fantastic footage of Dee Snyder of uh, Twisted Sister going into court. And I mean, the dude's wearing like ripped jeans and a bloody band t-shirt, big blonde perm hair and all the makeup. And you look at this guy and you think, God, he's going to be thick as pig shit. But he goes in with far more decorum and he absolutely blew everyone away because he just said, look, I'm not sure what you're getting at. I mean, I, I don't see why there's a problem here with the values and the music. I mean, he was a father. He spoke about being a father and how it meant what it did to him and his family and how these things can be ingested in a safe way. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of ways to enjoy different types of media. And if you try to shout at your kids from it, they're going to run further into it. You know, the, the more freedom you give them, the more they're going to explore, the less they're going to obsess. Well, there's also that sort of backfire effect. It's like saying, don't think about elephants. Like, it's it's in your head now. <laughs> so I think that there's a lot of parents. That, I've been that parent. I've made that mistake. Be careful. Don't do this. No, it, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, um, I mean, there's obviously times when you've got to do it for safety. But, you know, a human. Right, but there's uh, only so much control you have over your kid, even even when they're young. Yeah, of course, of course. But, you know, you, you teach them right, you make sure they know, you know, they have a moral compass. And then, you know, they're sentient beings. They're going to go and make their own decisions, their own mistakes. And that's life, you know, that's how you learn. As long as you don't punish them too much or, you know, uh, give them too much crap about it, it should be okay. So I want to come back to the issue of, you know, to what extent can we or can anyone successfully ban books or, or is it useful to label content or ideas as forbidden knowledge? Jacob shared with us that sort of historical perspective where, well, you know, in some cases, yeah, we, we have lost, you know, entire civilizations worth of, of information and in, in history. But in the modern age, we, we, if it's on the internet, you know, if you write it down in a book somewhere, I guess it could be easily lost. But if you, if you put it on the internet, uh, it's much harder to 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 stamp out that idea or or even that post sometimes. Uh, so I want to give Sentient Gorilla and Crashing Ego an opportunity to to share their opinion on to what extent you can or even you know should try to you know place things outside of bounds. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I hope everyone's having a fabulous day. Um, in my opinion, I kind of feel like um, <clears throat> a lot of things that are part of the modern conversation are being, I want to say that the reasoning that's given for our modern discourse, a good example is schools saying, oh, you, you know, don't uh, like the don't say gay bill or banning books from libraries that happen to have LGBTQ um, stuff in there. And I'm not necessarily advocating for this stuff i'm just saying that a lot of the times it seems to me that the whole notion of the school shouldn't tell the parents how to raise the kids it's the it's the parents responsibility i feel like a lot of that uh terminology is um just a uh, a mouthpiece to get people to get behind it but not really the real reason it's just anti-lgbtq i think that 
when it comes to um, preventing certain knowledge uh, or even uh, instilling uh, specific morality or or, or values um, in the youth, that responsibility comes down solely on the parents, and it is completely unacceptable for the parents to expect that the government has any right to uh, assist or enforce any any morality that you as a parent should be doing yourself. Um, other than that, I don't have a whole lot uh, to add that could enlighten the situation or the, the conversation, but that's that's my position. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of discussion around schools, and I think, you know, in public schools, at least, you just have this issue where, well, how many students do you have? How many parents do you have of those students? Uh, and how many different perspectives on what should or shouldn't be in a library that libraries aren't usually, <laughs> like, held to a vote or anything? And if they were, I think that would be a pretty chaotic world. Um, so yeah, uh, it seems like it's, it's gotten to be a bit of a competitive space for people. Uh, but like we said earlier, I don't think that banning things from a school library is going to, going to keep it, keep, you know, that, that idea is going to, is going to carry on regardless. Uh, Crashing Ego, did you want to, um, add your perspective here? I guess not right now at this particular moment. Uh, I'm going to bring Ashian on. So we're, we're talking about, we've talked a little bit historically and we're talking a little more modernly about, you know, um, banning information or people trying to ban information to what extent that's useful and to what extent it backfires and makes certain musicians more popular. Um, do you have anything you want to add to that, Ashian? See, your mic is off, but I cannot hear anything from you right now. Okay, and Crashing Ego is back with us. So we'll see if you guys can find your, your microphones. Okay, so I think I have a somewhat interesting example of um, missing or lost information, how it pertains to the the past and how it affects now all right and uh, it does actually and this is odd for me have something of a religious connotation which i mean that's severity um so i'll put it straight out there i'm a freemason now a lot of freemasonry is based on uh religious teachings a lot of it jewish um but what you, you may know about uh, Freemasons is we are a society with secrets. We are not a secret society. There is quite the difference. But uh, the example I'm referring to is um, historically, we did have real secrets of worth. They are the genuine secrets of a master mason. Now, um, back when our no, that's like yeah. trade secrets, basically, right? Basically, yeah. So the grand architect who was the one who constructed, or rather did the architecture work for the 
the temple of King Solomon was a gentleman by the name of Hiram Abeth. Um, uh, incredibly important to Freemasonry, like the top dog, dude. <laughs> now, he was murdered because he oh. was, yeah, he was he was told to give up the genuine secrets of a master mason, which at the time were uh, a, a, a real big deal. You know, obviously, he just planned out a massive, massive building for Solomon. And so, you know, everyone else wasn't exactly living in the kind of opulence that he was. It was kind of a big secret. So uh, he was pursued for these secrets. He didn't talk, and so he was killed. So all of the genuine secrets of a Master Mason were lost with him. Now, obviously, we've made a society based on that. But since then, we have had to have, we've had to create our own secrets. They're kind of like, I think it was like, I don't know, fill-in secrets, you know? Because they're not the real thing, but they're just like a placeholder. Well, and there is this, we talked about conspiracy theories a little earlier. There is this persistent conspiracy theory that you guys, you Freemasons are, you know, running the show, apparently. You guys are are the cabal behind it all. Um, And stop me if I'm mistaken, but aren't uh, the Shriners, the guys in the little cars, also part of the Freemasons? Or is is that something different? And I'm getting confused. I mean, it's all kind of under the same umbrella for what we do, but we're not so much associated with them as you say we're somewhat grouped together but they're um they're, they're not really the same uh so there is a difference but um going back to what i was saying so the the genuine secrets of a master mason were lost they were they were lost when harem was killed um now because we've had to make secrets basically to hold our society together um those secrets can be found easily with a google search i promise you there's nothing you cannot find on google about freemasonry wow so that's that's That's, the modern world there that's the modern world you can look up the modern secrets easily without a doubt but the original secret that was predicated on the whole thing completely lost totally lost no one has any idea so it's it's kind of a matter of you know as you say we've lost that information it's something lost to time that we're never likely to find again because at the time it wasn't written down as it was such a a closely guarded secret it was never written inscribed carved anything it died literally with harem abeth so, I mean, that's that. We're just never going to find out. So we've had to build something off of it. And uh, Well, and that's I guess that's a thing, right? Because you guys at least know that there was knowledge that was lost. But in many cases, the lost knowledge is just lost knowledge. And until and unless someone finds it, it's unknowable. 
Exactly. Exactly. And that's assuming it was written somewhere and put in a pot and put in a cave or lost on a hard drive under someone's bed or that, or that it is in fact discoverable, which, you know, as your example highlights, it is not, there is no discoverability behind what has been lost. No, I mean, there was talk that it was possibly stored in um, one of the lower parts of King Solomon's temple. But as that no longer exists, it's <laughs> it's kind of difficult to find. Um, so we've had to substitute it. But really, when you get down to it, the Freemasons are only really held together by uh, what we do. Primarily, we are a charity. And yes, there are religious connotations. There are things I think even you would really find interesting. So if you ever get invited to a Freemason's Lodge, please, please go. Even if you decide not to join, it is fantastically interesting. I think you'd cool. really enjoy it. I've learned a lot already, and... I've learned that I could learn a lot more if I want to. So that's, <laughs> that's a great place to start. Uh, I want to ask, we're, we're just about at our time here, but I want to ask one final sort of meta question of Jacob that we're talking about forbidden knowledge. And we've sort of been talking about, you know, our modern time, like it's like, it's immune to that, right? That if something's on the internet, we think of it as there forever. But websites die, you know, the Wageback Machine doesn't catch everything. And, you know, if our society collapses, are our hard drives particularly good for storing information? Or is all this information that we love so much actually more likely to, to be lost to the ages than, than a piece of papyrus might be? Uh, do, do we have any indication of that, Jacob? Uh, nothing is permanent and neither is the internet. Um, uh, I, I think that the, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, so much of the information we have is not just stored in devices, but also on an infrastructure that is required to make use of it all. Um, like electricity, for instance, can't do yeah. much without that. Uh, and it, it, at a certain point, it's less about um, what happens to uh, your sources and more about what happens to your library uh, because the systems we have that allow us to access information um, have many ways they can fail. They've failed in the past because uh, people have... Um, systematically crack down on those who know how to use systems of information or they uh, have, you know, languages and methods of reading have been lost to time and eventually sometimes been redeciphered and sometimes not. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't, I would caution against the idea that any information is unsalvageable uh, unless I suppose we mean the information in a, in a physics sense uh, but even then, we have the information paradox around black holes. So, um, but uh, I thank goodness for the information paradox around black holes. That's what I always say. <laughs> I I think that uh, even today, uh, the ability to remove information on a large scale uh, 
is demonstrated. For example, none of us have brought up the Great Firewall of China. Um, oh yeah, that's a big one. The system, the, the the People's Republic of China, and to an even more extreme degree, uh, that North Korea uh, also has in place uh, for limiting um, what sorts of information can be accessed online. This has involved creating essentially an entire web infrastructure that is far more centralized and easier to monitor um, versions of websites that we're familiar with in countries like the United States uh, and the member states of the European Union, um, like Google, will have uh, equivalencies there like Baidu that can be monitored very directly. Now, you can get around the Great Firewall. When I was in China for an extended period. VPNs have become pretty popular, right? Yeah, you can use VPNs. They're officially illegal, but what are they going to do, everyone? Or, like, all the young people have them. But even then, um, the effort and know-how and whatnot to use those means that the number of people who are going to be using them are are simply smaller than uh, the population at large. Now, you can think of what might happen... Um, over a long enough period of time if there weren't active forces trying to open up to the outside world, which there are in this case, uh, in our modern world. Um, I I hesitate to say that, like, um, for a certain number of people in society, I think that the, the fact of the matter is that uh, modern states can censor things very well. Uh, in an absolute sense, maybe not, but I don't think it's ever really been absolute in the past. It's just about how you concentrate power and how long you keep it concentrated that allows these things to work. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put it past. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the modern and future forces to remove information from the present. The the internet might be extensive, but uh, the written word was also a more extensive um, way of keeping things in the oral tradition when it came around, and we've still lost parts of it. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's a good place to leave it. That appreciate what you have. Um, because you may not always have it, that our information isn't, you know, we think of it as being safe, as backed up to the cloud or whatever, but, you know, maybe you want to write it down <laughs> or at least print it out. Um, but yeah, um, thank you for everyone uh, joining us in this conversation about uh, banned books and forbidden knowledge. I know we only scratched on the surface. So we can we can definitely come back to this in the, in the future, maybe with a uh, more specific focus. I think we got a good good sampling of the discussion uh, and thank you jacob for mentioning the great firewall of china uh, as well uh this has been the dank christian memes podcast our music is provided by olive tiger our next recording session is sunday at 3 p.m eastern time uh dank christian memes is a place for all kinds of christians and all kinds of non-christians to enjoy silly memes together as well as this podcast occasionally if you would like to connect with our community further there's a link to our discord in the comments section Uh, Thank you for listening, and until next time, may the memes bless you and keep you.